Welcome to another episode of the Capital Spotlight. Today we have Neil Bao with us. Welcome on the show. Thanks for having me on the show, Rob. Very excited to be here with uh, a fellow geek that I, uh, that I love uh, working with. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, let's dive right in and first talk a little bit about the background, give people an understanding of, of what role you play in the, in the space. Sure. I am a technologist that is basically using the power of technology, data, and metrics to buy large, uh, you know, multifamily and commercial properties, uh, about a $270 million portfolio. Um, roughly 3,000 accredited investors are looking at our projects. Uh, they're all over the United States. The properties are in 10 states. Uh, what we are proudest of is the way that we use analytics to move from city to city every year. We never stay in one city. Um, also, we um, use the power of virtual uh, organizations. We have a very large organization in the Philippines to optimize our properties. Yeah, I, lo I love those things. Uh, hopefully, we can talk a little bit more about, about that. So to start out, you know, what is your capital formation process? What does it look like when, when you like a deal and you want to actually you know, fund it? So we raise money on a deal-by-deal -deal basis every month. Every single month of the year, there's conversations within our business about creating a fund and, you know, aggregating money together and then, and then um, you know, doing those sorts of things. And um, we always shy away from it. I think that what I've found is that fundamentally investors really want to look at the deal that they're putting money into because it gives them that feeling of ownership. A fund doesn't create any feeling of ownership because... You know, I'm part of funds myself, so I'm, I'm a passive investor in funds. And I can tell you that uh, projects where I in, invested in an individual multifamily or in an individual uh, asset, I feel a higher level of attachment because I made that selection. I went in, I looked at the webinar, the pictures, the numbers, and I said, yep, I, I want to put 100 grand into this. With a fund, there's no emotion attached to it. It's just, I have no idea what, what they're buying. And when they send an email, they just say, hey, we bought this building or that building. And so there's really never any feeling of, well, they never asked me if I, you know, I should be part of that building. So what I find is that, that investors, even though they understand the benefit of a fund that you know, you're, you're diversifying across assets, so technically your, your, you know, your, your risk level goes down, what I found was because it doesn't meet that emotional requirement that I want to make a decision, that uh, it reduces the velocity of our raises. And so we stick with raising money project by project and it takes us about um, four to six weeks after we put a property in contract to raise the money. So no, those are interesting thoughts and points about the differences and pros and cons. And obviously there's the diversification aspect. And I, and mm -hmm. I think to your point, if someone's investing in a fund, they really have to get comfortable and and what they're really investing in is the the sponsor and they're mm -hmm. really trusting that person and they they want that rather than the piece of ownership in a specific property yeah and and i think that the truth is that you know if you've been investing with a sponsor on a deal by deal basis for a number of years then it makes sense to transition into a fund because you eventually get to the point where you're not investing into a property you're just investing into that that team and that happens a, a while after you start investing. Whether your first investment as a passive investor, you're always investing in a deal, right? I like this property. I want to invest in it. Yes, I like this team, but I really don't. What do I know about them, right? They sound like, you know, 
cool people, but they could be crooks for all I know. So I'm going to invest into this property. And the second deal, you're still looking at the property, but by the third deal, because you've now had a huge amount of exposure to that, that team, their, you know, their monthly emails, their quarterly webinars, whatever it is that they do for reporting, you're now transitioning to saying, I want to invest in this team. And that's when I think a fund becomes more powerful because you do want that, that diversity of the fund and you do want that uh, risk production. And I think a couple of ways, because you do have to make a fund more enticing to invest to simply, right? And I think a couple of ways that you could achieve that would be by having a lower minimum, making it more mm-hmm. accessible to somebody as well mm-hmm. as offering them certain uh, first looks and co-investment rights, right? If, you, mm-hmm. if they put money in the fund, then on, on deals that the fund is investing in, they can also get another look at maybe investing in a more attractive position of the capital stack or, or reduced fees or something like that. So I think those are some interesting ways to kind of scale. So moving on to partnerships, what, are, what types of partners are you looking for? Are you looking to partner with first-time sponsors, institutional sponsors, somewhere in between? What does that ideal sponsor for you look like? Okay. Um, I never want to partner with an institutional sponsor. I think that the mindset of an institutional sponsor, the way they react, the way they think is so different from us that I think I would be miserable partnering with an institutional sponsor. So I think that one's out. I, I don't mean to suggest that they're bad or evil or anything like that. I mean to suggest that there's no meeting of the minds there. The way they think, the way they believe is to me a little bit mercenary to them I think they're, they're going to say, hey, we just make logical decisions, right? To me, I'm the kind of guy that will, if my backs are to the wall, I'll fight. And an institutional fund is like, I'm investing a billion dollars. I've already factored in that I'm going to lose four or five assets. So I don't need to fight on this one because my other 95 assets are okay. I'm not okay with that. And so I think that there would be a clash there. So I don't think I'd invest with institutional folks. Would I invest with first-time partners? Um, That is a good question. Have I done it before? Yes. And if I think about it, in general, I have been happier investing with partners that were on their second, third, or fourth deal um, than with partners on their first deal, not necessarily because they were bad people. I actually like working with them, but because... It, it took a while for them to come to the same conclusions that we would come to. So it was a process where, you know, if you had done three deals, you would take a month to come to that same conclusion that we had or come to the same conclusion at the same time as us. Whereas a new partner, it took them three, six, nine, 12 months to come to that conclusion. So standing by and waiting for them to arrive at the inevitable conclusion that we'd arrived at based on experience uh, has proven to be a rather frustrating process. And, and, and so I think that there's really no substitute for experience. But what I've found is, I'm not sure if I want to partner with somebody that has done a dozen deals. So I think that there's a Goldilocks zone there. There's a sweet spot there. And to me, I think that sweet spot is, I'd like to be partnering with people on their third deal all the way up to maybe their 10th. And then beyond the 10th deal, I think that they really need to work by themselves because eventually you get to the point where you've done so many deals, for better or for worse, your opinions get very 
uh, strong and rigid. And that's just a natural byproduct of so much experience, right? I mean, it, it must be really difficult to tell Warren Buffett something that he doesn't already know or sway his mind at this point, right? You know, I'm sure Charlie has trouble telling anything to Warren Buffett. So my, my point is, I think that there's a sweet spot there. And my, my sweet spot is like the third to the 10th deal. That's an ideal partner for us to work together. And then beyond that point, firstly, they probably don't need work to work with a partner because they're so well settled. And secondly, I think that it would be hard for them to, to kind of be flexible. That's a really interesting point. I, I definitely haven't heard that Goldilocks idea. But along, along those lines, in terms of doing too many deals, I think one thing that you told me that I really liked was that you pride yourself on traveling all across the country, talking to everybody, and you uncover the diamond in the rough sponsors that really crush it on the operation side, but are terrible and hate marketing. I wouldn't say they're terrible and hate marketing. I'd say that they're not good at it um, and they struggle with it. And eventually they come to the conclusion that this is just not something that they like spending time on, right? So there's people out there that I think that would do well if they spend the amount of time, but they have a strong resistance to spending the amount of time that is needed to raising capital. Raising capital, I don't consider it to be a part-time job, though most syndicators do it as a part-time job. I think that raising capital is a very full-time job. And so the approach that we've taken is if we can partner with people that are bringing good products to us, and are willing to engage with us in an asset management system that we've designed. It's not their design, it's our design. So, you know, we have about 60 or 70 asset management trackers and those trackers, you know, some, some of them, a lot of them are updated weekly, some are updated monthly, some are updated quarterly, a few are updated quarterly. And they're willing to talk to our, um, how shall I describe it, to our hound, our CFO, Loretta Hayes. She's got 30 years worth of experience and they're willing to basically go through a, examination of the property's fundamentals every month, that group we'd love to work with it, it, because we believe that finding assets and going through the due diligence process is also a very full-time job because if you want to be a stable syndicator, you want to do it four times a year. Well, if you're going to be doing it four times a year, where's the time to raise money? Absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, looking for deals is a full-time job and raising money is a full-time job. And I think Richard Wilson also, he said that 30% of your firm's effort and or capital needs to be earmarked for capital raising. So you need to have a budget, a marketing budget, and obviously a staff and things like that. That we, makes we, sense. In our company, it's 50. So half of our money, half of every dollar of uh, acquisition fees that we make goes directly into a marketing salary or a marketing expense. So we keep it at 50% because we believe that 30% has, has one challenge, that there are going to be deals that will fail that could destabilize you even if the other deals are succeeding. So we stay at 50% and it allows us to have freedom, the sort of freedom that we have today. Can you imagine, Rob, we had deals that, because we have so much equity, we had tiered the deals so that investors were coming in at different months. Okay. Nobody does that because there's risks with that, but obviously you increase the IRR by having investors coming in different months for these longer deals. As you can imagine in March, a bunch of those investors fell off and then in April they fell off again and then May, they fell off again. But because for years and years we had invested 50% of our total budget on marketing, we were just able to find other people, right? So we didn't even send one single email out to our database saying, hey, these properties are open again. There was just enough 
demand to just for people to just pick up those shares. And I think altogether, three or four million dollars was back backfilled in two and a half months of COVID. That I think would not have happened. People would have struggled royally with that if they had, you know, been at thirty percent of budget. And and to be honest, most indicators are not even at thirty percent. Yeah, I I agree. So. Yeah, so you mentioned some really good stuff there, and you even uh, teased your asset management practices and the and the metrics. So I definitely want to uh, jump into that. But before we do, along those lines, I want to talk about back to the ideal sponsor. What does their operation slash infrastructure look like? Um, you know, in in terms of asset management capabilities, reporting, accounting, in house property management, third party management. Talk about those things. The first thing that I look for. So I have about a million and a half invested into other sponsors, right? And some are multifamily and some are hotels and some are self-storage. It's kind of all across the board on, on lots of different asset classes. The thing that I've found over almost a decade of passive investing is that the most important single, single thing to look for is actually a, a stellar backend accounting infrastructure. So it's the ones that have actual CFOs. It's the ones that have actual controllers and full-time accountants. They've scaled because you cannot get institutional money without that infrastructure because the institutionals require five or six times the reporting that an individual would require. And you cannot really get a clear insight into a large scaled portfolio without having full-time professionals that manage money. And accountants don't manage money, but controllers and CFOs do. Their job is to provide insight into what is happening in a portfolio. And so the, the biggest thing that I've looked for, and it's a very unusual thing. I mean, if you ask this question to 100 people, you might get one person answering this. But what I've really found is that the companies that were well run were not the flashy kind. They were, they, I mean, some of the companies that were best run that made me lots of money on, on the passive side were companies that their, their you know, monthly reports were like two paragraphs, right? But then they had a package attached to that. And the questions, when I was asking questions in those, those uh, you know, areas, the answers were very crisp because somebody who was a high-level financial individual was looking at it. So that is my number one criteria, work with companies that have a really strong you know, accounting backend. The second one is a nice-to-have, but I, th- I, know I, I certainly looked at it, is have they scaled to the point where they have an in-house property management company? Because if you do that, you get a better result. But there's a catch. If they have a thousand units and they have a property management company, they're wannabes. If they have 5,000 units and they're, they have a property management company, they've scaled. I'm not saying that that person that has a thousand units with a property management company is not doing the right thing. It's just, I'm not ready to give them my money yet. I want them to get up to that 5,000 units. They're going in the right direction. They're doing the right thing. But when you have 1,000 units with a property management company, you know, it hasn't scaled. That PM, you're going to have lots and lots of challenges with in-house property management at 1,000 or 1,500 units. At 5,000 units, it makes sense, right? It makes sense to have a property management company in-house, and you can afford to hire a CEO for your property management company. You can afford to have it as a individual organization. So that's, that's something that I look for when I'm investing um, into, into companies. And then a third thing that I look for is that over time, as the company has gotten bigger, when they're you know, buying $50 million assets or they're buying large numbers of properties, then over time, they've reduced their front-end fees. Because what, tell, what that tells me is that 
that over time they've created an infrastructure where they, and this is normal, right? I mean, if you've been doing it for five or 10 years, you should now get to the point where the front end fees become less important, right? Are they less important for me at this point? No, I, I still want my front end fees as a syndicator, but I'm moving in that direction where it becomes less and less important. So I wanna see evidence that, you know, five years ago, I've, and, and I often ask them for an old offering memorandum so I can compare, has it, have their fees decreased over time? Because if they haven't decreased, then something's wrong, right? So they went through all of these deals. Supposedly, they were supposed to make what? You know, <coughs> 30 or $40 million on the back end, and they made all of that money, and they're still charging the exact same you know, stuff in deals. Why, right? So I, I look for that, and, and some of the ones that I've invested substantial amount of money in actually backload their fees. I mean, like, for example, there's one, um, that where they charge the same acquisition fee as, as, as Rob Beardsley, but what they've done is because they don't need the money, they charge it on exit. So that money is not front loaded on equity, right? They're still getting the dollars, but they're making it on the back end. You see what I mean? So I think those are the sort of things I look for. Some of these things that I'm mentioning are very advanced, especially this last example I gave you, very advanced. But I think that, um, you know, that gives me a good feeling for what they're doing. When their reports come in, I'm looking at people that are highly consistent in their reporting. I've, I've uh, been, unfortunately, been part of syndications where the reports were not consistent. If a, if a you know, syndication is really one of those jobs that's very menial and it's very step-by-step, -step. you know, there's a thousand check boxes to check off every month and every quarter. I wanna invest in companies that are set up to check off a thousand check boxes. So I look for things like, you know, do they send me a monthly report at the same time of the month? And is it a similar structure or is it just somebody ranting, right? Do they follow a similar structure and process and does it improve over time? Um, and I think those are, those are great things. Um, we consider ourselves to be very, very strong with asset management and investor reporting. We give ourselves, you know, there's lots of things where we give ourselves a B or a, or a C, but we would not give ourselves a B or a C on, on instruct, investor reporting or, or asset management. And we see that other quality providers are doing some of those things that we are doing. They may not be doing it in a, in a technologically advanced way, but whatever way they have found, whether it's you know, manual or, or automated, is still very close to the, the best practices that we've put together. So that's what I look for. A lot of good stuff there. Uh, another interesting thing about the front load, back load fees, I've also seen, you know, obviously everybody wants to take the fees they can get. And so, but one way to do it, as you mentioned, is to put it to the back. Another way would be to defer, you know, reinvest some of that fee into the deal. So you're yeah. not just taking it out as cash. You're actually going to put it in there and ride with the investors into the, into the investment. So, I think that's a good practice. Uh, when, if you're not taking that money out in any way, if, if it stays in the deal, I think that's a, that's a, is a, that's a good practice to look at. Um, and I, I'm very much in support of that, right? Obviously, the more a sponsor invests, the better it is. Um, you know, my number one kind of green flag is, as opposed to a red flag for a deal is a, a deal where a sponsor, not their buddies, but the sponsor is in for 10% or I've had deals where the sponsor was in for 30 uh, and I've been part of one deal, just one, where the sponsor was in for more than 50% of the equity, right? So uh, the higher the skin in the game, the better. Absolutely. 
So jumping into now asset management, let's, let's take a deeper dive because you obviously have some strong feelings about your asset management and, and the topic in general. And what I want to know is how does that get handled between your company and the local sponsor? And, and how do you avoid too many cooks in the kitchen? By having one structure as opposed to two different structures. So from the very beginning, and we are getting better and better at this, is when an operating partner comes to us and says, hey, we want to buy this property together. We used to be kind of show them a little bit of what they're supposed to do. Now we kind of have, you know, recorded videos where we say, well, this is what our CapEx tracker looks like. And these are all the fields that need to be filled. And this is how often they need to be filled. This is what our net operating income tracker looks like. This is what our lead trackers look like. This is what our occupancy delinquency trackers look like. So we've get, we're getting better at telling them up front what they need to do, how often they need to do it. We make them watch those videos, we answer their questions, and then beyond that, obviously, there's going to be no misunderstanding. Does that mean that every single operating partner we work with is equally good just because we set the right expectations? No, some of them struggle, some of them don't because you know everyone's different. But, but they don't come back to us and say, uh, no, I wanna do my thing. Well, we had a very clear discussion that we believe that this is the way that the property was, is, is supposed to be managed. And if you're not okay with it, then you know, let's not proceed. So by having those conversations upfront and making them understand the sort of things that we are expecting uh, you know, is very helpful. We also show them how our Philippines-based efficiency center works, what its costs are. We show them the last six months worth of profit that the efficiency center has generated for the last five value-add properties. Um, and we give them phone numbers of those partners and say, hey, you, you have to understand what the efficiency center does. There's a cost for this. Don't come back to us and say, I, I don't want to pay this cost because we know how much profit it brings in. If the average property is at 92% you know, average physical occupancy and you take it up to 97, that last 5% is almost 100% profit. It's 90% profit. To not do anything and everything that you can for that last 5%, Arcs the hell out of me. And that's why I created the Efficiency Center. I love that. So, and I want you to explain the cost of the Efficiency Center and who bears that cost. Is that a deal cost or are you putting that cost and the sponsor has to pay for it? We divide, so the Efficiency Center is based in the Philippines. The managers are in the Philippines. The recruiters are in the Philippines. The staff's in the Philippines. Uh, they are overseen by my partner, uh, Anna Myers but all of the staffs in the Philippines, the efficiency center runs about 13 hours a day, six days a week. Um, their trainers are in the Philippines as well. So we, what we do is we simply track every single hour that they spend, all of their technology, all of their services. We track all of it together. We add a 10% overage for that because we have other parts of our company that have to pitch in to, to make, make those things happen. And then we split it up by property, depending upon the amount of time that they put into that property. So a property that has 200 leads a week is going to be billed a higher amount than a property that has 40 leads a week, right? So by, by you know, so we come up with a fair structure and we bill it back to the properties. Usually from what we've seen, that cost doesn't go over $10,000 a year per property. And, um, the, the, the worst property, the one that has benefited the least from the efficiency center in the last 12 months had a 5X multiple in that they, they basically got $50,000 of net leases. The best one had a 27X multiple. So they basically got 
you know, for that $10,000, they got $270,000 of additional leases on top of what they had. Um, and that $270,000, we, we calculated it once, one time, um, and it was about 91% net profit. Incredible. So definitely want to stick to asset management, but I want to also pose this question to you, more of an economic idea. With this cash flow boost, we'll call it, with, you know, you're essentially so with your value-added skills, you're able to drive occupancy that, that higher than what is market, right? Because an average operator who would value the deal at, at that average occupancy and then place a cap rate on it, the property is worth X to them, right? Based on that underwriting and valuation. Now, what that means is that with your capabilities, you're able, the property is worth more to you than the market, right? Because the cash flow is, is greater to you than it is to somebody else. So my question is, does then that encourage you to want to hold properties for longer? Because you're in a situation where the cash flow is meaningful, it's, it's attractive, and someone selling, so when you sell the property, you're not going to sell it for as much as the cash flow is worth to you. No, because the, the way cap rates work today at a sixth cap, when the efficiency gen center generates $1 of net profit per year, on sale, we receive $16 of net profit. So the goal of the efficiency center is to drive up the net profit as much as we possibly can, right? And then sell it because we want to monetize that increased net profit. So, you know, in that best case example that I gave you, we generated $270,000 in additional leases with a $10,000 expense. So that's $260,000. Let's assume that you know, 240,000 was NOI. Well, each year that's 240 grand of which I would probably get 30% or less, right? My partners together. But when we sell the property, we get 16 times 240,000, which is 4 million bucks of which definitely we would get 30%, probably some catch up on the cash flow as well. So now you're looking at well over a million dollars. So this is a the answer that I gave you is horribly, horribly one-sided and, and selfish, but it's also an honest answer. To me, given the magic of the efficiency center, why would I hold on to a property? Because my incremental benefit is in getting the NOI pop, getting the cap rate on exit, rinse repeating property after property as opposed to holding forever. Yeah, I agree with you. I would just push on the idea that if you're operating a property at 100% occupancy, right, due to your efficiency center, the market won't give you that added value increase of, you know, the multiplier on the six cap to 4 million because when I underwrite that deal, I'll underwrite it with a 5% vacancy or a 7% vacancy. So you're not going to pick up that each every last dollar of incremental value, but I absolutely agree that monetizing the value you've created when you've taken occupancy from average or below to, you know, 95 that that is absolutely worth it. So I, let me tell you how I do that. So you're absolutely right. There is no benefit to being at 98 or 99% occupancy in the final year before sale. But one year before sale, we start using the efficiency center to drive up our uh, rents, even at the expense of that occupancy. So we become increasingly ridiculously ex you know, aggressive on increasing rents, it is non-sustainable. Eventually your occupancy is gonna fall below 95, 
but we time it so that it's falling from 98 down to 97, 96, 95. All along, we're getting rent pops from it. And the property goes up for sale right, right as it's at 96. And by the time it's sold, it's at 95 and we've gotten the final rent pop. So the, the goal is at some point, you, you know, you used to have these equalizers back in the 80s, right? We play that equalizer game, right? And, and so as long as you're holding the property, you keep it at that 97, 98. And then the last year, you just go all out for the, the rent pops. If it means that some tenants leave, doesn't matter because at that point, I'm, I'm exiting. Yes, I like that a lot. So going back to asset management, talk a little bit more about key metrics that you look for. And uh, actually, before we do that, I want to just comment on the fact that or clarify that you've set up a structure, you have a system, you have these metrics. And are you placing really the you've created the system and now the onus is on the sponsor to really meet and answer all those questions? Or is there more active involvement on your end? Oh no, it's it's active. So we don't we don't pretend to say we we give you a system. It's nothing like that. So um, one, we have two employees on every property management call for the duration of the project. So I think that there's no better answer than that. One of them is my partner Anna. She's on every call. Unlike most uh, groups, we also do uh, every two weeks we do a management call with no property manager on the call, and. I am on that call for most properties. Once they stabilize, I tend to, to skip those and, and kind of spread them further apart. But in the first two years, the load on the operator is significant because they're not just attending the property management call, they're attending separate management calls. Because we found that a lot of times when you're in the property management call, something happens and you're like, I wanna take an action item, but you can't say those things because the property manager is listening and you forget. So it's better to have separate conversations where there's no PM involved. And so I'm involved, you know, my partner Anna's involved, a third person who's in our asset management team, she's involved. So no, we, we are not, um, it's not a system. It's, you know, we, we jointly manage the property with our operating partners. Got it. And Thanks that's for what we prefer. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So let's just touch on a few metrics that you think are important, uh, maybe even overlooked on the asset management side. Well, I think the one that, you know, uh, I'll give you the standard answer and I'll get, and then I'll give you some extras. Um, obviously, physical occupancy, delinquency. Um, there's one called net exposure and every software looks at net exposure separately. I, I really want to track net exposure because what I want to track is what are the new leases that I've signed for people that haven't come in yet? What are the leases that I have that are approved uh, or, or applications that are approved? And then you have all these people that have given you an NTV or a notice to vacate, right? So the combination of those, and we do a very custom version of it, is really your net exposure. And, and, and I don't think enough people track their net exposure. Therefore, I, I hear, when they don't do that, I hear things like, oh, I'm at 95%. And I'm like, I don't care that you're at 95%. Your exposure shows that you're going to be at 89 here very soon, right? Or on the other hand, they're like, well, I'm at 92%, but I'm like, wow, but your exposure is at all time lows. The only way is up, right? So I think if you don't look at exposure together with your physical and economic occupancy, right now there's too much focus on delinquency because you know everyone's running scared with COVID, but you've got to look at your overall exposure. Actually, exposure has dropped in the industry because less people are moving, right? So people are not really looking at the benefit of exposure because if less people move, 
your churn cost reduces, so your overall cost of maintenance is gonna reduce. So while your, your revenue might be dropping, your net operating income might be increasing, right? So people are, I feel like people are not really looking at all of these pieces. They're just focused on economic occupancy, physical occupancy, there's more here to look at. Um, so those are numbers that I look at. And, and then there's the other unique number that I feel like very, very few companies look at. And um, there's a term that I, in, I created and invented that now I'm beginning to hear more people in the industry talk about it. So that's a good thing called LASIL. LASIL stands for five words. So it's, it's leads, appointments, um, shows, applications, and leases. And I think there's not five numbers to track. There's these five numbers and then the ratios between each of those five numbers. So there's a total of nine metrics to track. I find I have never come across a company doing that and I do not understand that because if you are, if you hire a sales manager, doesn't matter what kind of sales manager it is, they could be selling auto parts or selling, you know, million dollar software. They will understand this system right? It's nothing special. I didn't invent it. This system is, 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 is independent of industry. But in the real estate industry, we simply expect that the property manager will track this, but I haven't come across a property manager that tracks that. And shockingly, I have not come across software like, you know, stuff like, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the big software like Yardi doesn't give you a clear understanding of these five metrics and four ratios. And so eventually we started creating custom systems to track them ourselves because what we found was that there was usually a problem in one of these, you know, four ratios. You were really great at bringing in leads into your property, but the person that was on the phone was always late. Everybody else was calling. And so you never got any appointments or you had a phenomenal number of appointments and nobody really went to the application stage because your application fee was too high or you had a terrible salesperson, the grumpiest person you can imagine taking them through the units. And so nobody ever wanted to live there. So I think that how do you figure those out unless you track these numbers? And, and I, I just don't see the industry doing it. I, I think that it's a, it's a huge hole in, in the industry's understanding of how sales are done. Yeah, that's funny because when I hear LASIL, I think, I think of you and I think, well, that's not really a real term. That's just something Neil said. What's the real term? But now I just hear it more and it's, it's becoming a real term. Yeah, so good. that's a good thing. That, that's a good thing. So uh, kind of jumping around, I know we touched on uh, sponsors co-investing, but I just have a question here. How much equity do you require your sponsors to invest and, and or raise for the deal? It depends. Um, I want to understand how much, it, you know, and it varies a great deal. If you're a sponsor that's done six or seven deals, I expect you to invest more money. If you're a sponsor that's done two deals, I expect you to invest less money. Why should that those two be equal, right? So if you're a, a newer sponsor, in my mind, the investment that you're making is into your time, into building your reputation, so I'm going to be more lenient, okay? And I might throw in more of my money to kind of compensate for that. Um, cause you know, the investors are still expecting the sponsor team to invest a certain amount of money. If it's a sponsor that's been around for a while, then I expect them to invest quite a bit more money. Um, so I, I think that's the honest answer. I've never created a benchmark because I, I felt like it doesn't make sense. I agree with that. And, and what about, I mean, do you have a, a, 
a minimum that you want them, if they can't come up with it out of their own pocket, can they go and raise it from family and friends or their investors? To some extent, I, I've, I've found that one has to be very careful about that. Uh, the, the definition of family and friends gets extended to, you know, this is a guy I met last week and he became my friend. And so he's putting 100,000 in. So I want to calculate that. So the, the answer is within reason, yes, because what I have seen is that if they're truly friends or truly family, you feel the same level of pain or even more than your own money. I've, all, I've never taken money from family and I've taken money from friends and regretted it. And so one thing I know is that for honest people, good people, the pressure of taking friend and family money is the same as taking your own money. But once again, are they truly your friends? Are they truly your, your relatives? If you can ascertain that, then it's great. Because I, I personally think it probably hurts more than your own mm -hmm. money. But how do you really know? Yeah. So jumping around again, let's, look, let's actually talk about deals. Let's talk about markets and strategies. So what markets and strategies are you currently interested in? And uh, you know, talk about some metrics, return criteria, and, and property type. Well, as you know, I have a 10 metric dashboard, five for cities and five for neighborhoods that I've been using for a long time. I teach it. It's called a course called Location Magic that about 10,000 people a year take both on Udemy, on our website. And then I also teach it in the Bay Area. Not, not recently, but I often teach it in the Bay Area, here, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, my thoughts on Lacely are that things have changed where... Uh, not Laser, sorry, on Location Magic, where the one of the city components was jobs. And that has actually become the 800-pound gorilla. Today, if a city in the Midwest that isn't growing at all, let's say it's flat, uh, Cincinnati. Cincinnati is a city that isn't growing. There's no population growth. I will pick Cincinnati if it, it so happens that a portion of Cincinnati, for whatever reason, has only lost 6% of its jobs. Whereas, let's say Provo, Utah, which is a city that has phenomenal fundamentals, but that portion of Provo has lost 25% of its jobs. I'm going to pick Cincinnati over Provo. So I think that, you know, my methodology has been very consistent for a while, but I'm, I'm you know, coming to the conclusion today that what matters is jobs. Now, I might tell you something different in 12 months, but I, I don't think I'm gonna tell you anything different in the next six months because all that matters is jobs. The upheaval that was created by COVID is so intensely unique that using traditional measures like you know, income growth or home price growth or population or even crime has become almost irrelevant. So I'm looking at cities that are not losing a lot of, um, you know, jobs. I mean, Vegas was at the very top of the Yardi Matrix list in terms of rent growth. Well, I expect that to be highly negative for the next, you know, six to 12 months. I mean, the city has lost 28% of its jobs. So what I'm doing is I'm basically, firstly, I'm waiting for a couple months because all of our job numbers right now are fake right? Because of all the PPP stuff and all the unemployment, the supplementary unemployment, they're all fake. But I think by, by end of July, early August, when we see new numbers come in, they're going to be real unemployment numbers. Um, and then based on that, I'm going to look at what cities in the U.S. Are, um, have the, the, the highest job growth. I look at a website called um, the Department of Numbers, so departmentofnumbers.com slash employment slash metros, 
And so when I look at it in August, I think when I see metros that I know are fundamentally very strong, like you know Provo or uh, Phoenix, if I continue to see good job growth there, then that's what I'm going to go after. I all I can tell you is right now is a time to really be worried about uh, parts of the U.S. that are fundamentally weak. So there's there's you know markets that have just been extremely weak. You know Detroit is a well-known example, but places like St. Louis, uh, parts of um, you know Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. These are markets that have been very weak fundamentally, and COVID is exposing those weak fundamentals uh, very quickly. So we're, we're going to see a, a very two-level market in the next two years. You're going to see some markets, normally you see a ni nice wide dispersion of markets from top to bottom. I think we're going to see two clusters develop, and the cluster at the bottom is not going to do well at all. But at the cluster at the top, the effect of COVID will actually be fairly minimal, in my opinion. So through uh, through your explorations of data and matching that up with investment performance and, and opportunity, have you seen that chasing growth at all costs is the most profitable thing? Because something that I worry about or, or just notice is that typically growth is not a secret. And if you're buying in a place like Phoenix, you're paying an extremely low cap rate. So what do you do to mitigate the risks of you know, chasing growth? No, chasing growth at all, um, you know, at, at all cost is not a good idea. There are lots and lots of great growth opportunities that I've let go because the prices were too bubbly. Um, you know, for four years, I've been talking about Orlando. I never bought anything there because I felt that every time I tried to buy something, the price would just move up another notch and, and make no sense anymore. I, I haven't bought anything in Phoenix either. So I, I've talked about these cities for a long time, but I haven't bought anything there. So there's... There's one methodology that I believe that works, and it's a complicated methodology. It's not for everyone. And that is to invest in a 30-mile radius around the ultra-hot city without staying in the city itself. So for Phoenix, I would look to invest in, you know, for example, Mesa or, or a few other places, um, you know, that, that Tempe, for example. Tempe is becoming expensive as well. As you can imagine, an ultra-hot city, all the cities around it become hot too. But in my mind, that heat is acceptable because a lot of those have better deals. A lot of those have um, you know, lower prices. Uh, here's an example. So I've been, I've been looking at Phoenix and just doesn't make sense to me. So I started looking at Mesa. And, I'm, and you know, eventually I decided I'm going to just go out and build in Mesa, 240-unit apartment complex. We're at a very advanced stage. We did the, the raise last year. I was very proud to see that two days ago, the Yardi Matrix report that came out, I think it was either Yardi Matrix or it was CoStar, I can't remember. This report basically showed the metros with the highest rent growth over the last 30 days. And Mesa or East Mesa, I'm in East Mesa, was at over 10% annualized rent growth, right? And it's now at this point of time where Phoenix's rent growth has compressed very, very quickly because its, its prices were already so high, so there's some ceilings there, and it started to hit those ceilings. So I think the strategy that I use is go around the ultra-hot city. The other strategy, which is well-known, is a primary will drive up prices in its secondary. So Sacramento prices were driven up by the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, prices in Colorado Springs were driven up by Denver. 
Um, and um, Tucson was driven up by Phoenix. So I invest in Tucson. I don't invest in Phoenix. I like that. So now talking about the properties themselves, let's just have a quick discussion about property vintage, property type. Are you buying deals? And how do you look at and evaluate a deal and it's seven, built in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s? So I like deals that are built in the 80s. I have bought deals that were built in the 70s. I bought deals that were built in the 60s. And my experience with them is if you didn't have a lot of problems with your 60s or 70s properties, you were lucky. Buy 10 of them and you'll know exactly what I mean. I think 60s properties and 70s properties, especially early 70s, the plumbing issues are so painful that if you fix them all, you're not going to make any money. And if you don't fix them, you're in this perpetual state of troubleshooting. Um, there's, you know, obviously other issues, but, but plumbing comes to mind and, and then the foundation cracks start to appear and, and they become problematic as time goes on. So I think over time, what I've learned is, you know, for the moment, it makes sense to buy 80s properties. Um, I, I have no objection actually to buying 90s and 2000s properties. Most people in the market consider them to be too new. I, I'm just looking at the delta. Is there a delta? that makes sense. So in my mind, a 2005 property is just as good as a 1986 property. Is there a delta? Right. You have to, and, and whatever you're investing in, you have to be compensated for your risk. So you'll buy the seventies deal if you're paying a low enough price to account for those anticipated repairs. Yeah. And I think that there wasn't enough of that, that pop, you know, what, what happened is that we, we saw a market in the last two years where a 60s, 70s and an 80s property was selling for the same cap rate which showed me that the market was being driven by people that did not have sufficient experience to understand the difference. They were paying the same rates. Yep. The risk premium across the curve was getting compressed. So in terms of quality of assets, right. Uh, and, and taking more or less risk, what is your take about as the cycle matures, right? We, we were in a very mature stage of the cycle and now who knows where we are today, but we're in a new cycle. I hope so. So the, uh, you know, how do you feel that your strategy should best evolve over the course of a cycle? Should you take more risk as it matures, less risk? When, when does development become attractive to you? I know development has recently become something that you've been focusing on. Development is attractive today for one simple reason. I am not seeing any of those, uh, new Fannie Freddie requirements on development. So right now we have quotes from three different banks on our University Oaks deal in Houston. All of them are at 4% or lower. I have, you know, a 4.75%, um, you know, quote on a deal which we may or may not do. That's an industrial deal in Utah. But none of them require this whole principal interest taxes, 12 month impound thingy. None of them are, you know, like, uh, you know, like value-add bridge loans now have some insane spread, like five or 6% is a spread, right? You look at that and you go, basically what they're telling you is we're not doing any business, right? Because nobody can really, you know, handle that kind of a spread. You can't buy anything. So I think the industry is coming to a standstill. So it's really not about preference, Rob. The multifamily industry from a bridge perspective, has, it practically does not exist today. And I don't know how many months before it exists because 
I have no idea when these spreads are going to come down. I feel that they cannot stay up too long. Um, so either they're going to come down or the industry is going to come down, right? So one of those two, two things is going to happen. So, I mean, deal volumes are down for bridge loans. I think if they're not down by 90%, then people are crazy because they should be down by more than 90%. Now, obviously, anybody who's buying a, a, a um, stabilized property is getting a phenomenal deal today, you know, three and a half percent. Good for you. Go ahead and buy those. I can't buy those. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at bridge deals. I don't have a choice. So the question is, do you have a choice? Well, development looks better when it's the only choice. You see what I mean? So by default, it looks better. And I think it also looks better because for, for experienced sponsors with track records, with net worth, with liquidity, you're getting astonishing quotes in the development market. Who in their right mind would ever send a, a sub 4% quote for a development deal a year ago? I have three of those from last week. Anybody that wants to send me an email, I'll send you those quotes. So it's not that development is a good alternative. It's just today it looks awesome. Maybe tomorrow I'll change my mind. So explain for those listening why a stabilized deal, which would do well with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac debt is not for you. Um, so the, for, the fa for, the, for the most part, what I felt is that bridge debt is what is required today to win deals. And if you're winning 10-year uh, fixed deals, um, you know, uh, you're, you're likely to be overpaying or you have some really patient investors that are willing to take much lower cash flow and much lower returns. I wish I had those investors. Uh, maybe I do. I, I don't know. I keep thinking about that. So I think that in my mind, this is not a bad time to buy a 10-year fixed deal. I'm certainly not suggesting that it is. With bridge, you really don't have a choice. I mean, it, how, how are you going to make your bridge numbers work? Nobody knows. But with 10-year fixed, the numbers can work. Obviously, your cash flow is going to be slow and, and, and pick up over time. So I think if you, if you can convince your investors, it's not a bad time to buy it. The only reason I'm not doing it is I still find that sellers have not adjusted their reality to you know, being a little bit more flexible to some small price declines, maybe 5 maybe 10%. I'm not talking about 2008, but some sort of declines. And I feel like if I give it another three or four months and then start buying, the rates are not going to go up. In my mind, the Fed's not going to raise rates for another two years. So I have this two-year time frame to be buying these 10-year these fixed properties. Why not wait for the rates to come, uh, for the prices to come down a tad bit? So um, nothing against buying those 10-year fixed. I just feel like Q4 might be a better time to buy. I think you're right. We, we'll see. We definitely haven't seen that widespread price declines from the sellers you know it's just been very here and there and, and small and my uh, to another point you said my intel is telling me that probably the bridge market's going to get up and running in two months it will i i so today we had something very important happen fannie may um reduce limits or requirements on certain kinds of properties in certain situations in certain markets you know it's not enough but it's the beginning of them acknowledging that the market appears to be returning closer to normal. We're certainly not normal, very far from normal, but we're moving towards normal at some speed. So they're making an acknowledgement of that. And when that happens, when a conventional lender says, hey, we're, gonna, we're not a, that as afraid as we were before, the bridge market adjusts its spreads because spreads are based on fear. 
So if, if the conventionals are less afraid, the bridge market should be less afraid. I wouldn't be surprised if within 30 days that, that spread drops by at least 100, 150 basis points. So I think that the bridge market will return over the next two to three months. But I don't expect the bridge market to drop to, you know, four and a half percent type loans that we had in February. I think that's going to take a while because that doesn't make sense. All right, Neil, last question is, what are you looking for from sponsors or from deals that you rarely find? Hmm. One, I, I love deals that have the ability to construct additional units. I think given my abilities, I love constructing those units. I know they're extremely hard. A lot of people don't think about why it's very hard. Well, who's going to create the equity for that? And you typically don't build additional units when you go into a deal. You want to stabilize it first. You want to prove the concept. And then a year later, you want to do that. Well, most people are like, how the heck am I going to raise two million bucks in equity? Because my bank is not going to give me an additional loan. I don't want to take an additional two million dollar loan now. And you shouldn't. You never should do that. I have created structures that allow me to raise that, that two million bucks almost like a short term loan. Almost. Without actually taking a loan on the property because my lender is not going to allow me to take that loan. So I, I've created a concept called short-term equity, which gets around the lender's requirements because it's not a loan, but it gets around my issue because it's not equity. I don't want five years of equity created for one year of new construction use. So short-term equity actually is a very weird concept. I think I need to, at some point, come up with a better name for it, but I've used it and it works beautifully. It allows me to take you know, loans from investors as equity and give them 10% for one year and then give their money back to them. They never get anything else. And uh, we we're finishing up a project. And as a result, that project has gone from a 19% uh, annualized average return projection to a 33.5%, even though we're hitting our 50-50 tier uh, on it. So we're hitting a bonus tier and still going up from 19 to 33. I love sponsors to bring me deals that have those kinds of possibilities, which normally get overlooked because you know new construction is so hard to do on an existing property. Burn units, those sorts of things are lovely to have. Um, this, it's got to have something. I, I'm looking for something that, that the property, you know, has to offer. The second thing I absolutely love is a sponsor who is willing to live at a property. I know this is hard, but what I've seen consistently properties that have a sponsor that lives there for some portion of the first year have a significantly better chance. I know why you're smiling. They have a significantly better chance of performing than properties that don't. I mean, if you're willing to do that, I'll, I'll take a look at it. I mean, I, I, I know it's going to do better. I agree. I'll leave it at that. Uh, well, Neil, thank you so much for being on the show. Definitely a great discussion. Tell the listeners, um, you know, anything you want to tell them about how to contact you, where they should go to learn more. Yeah. Um, so easy enough to bring deals to me. You can contact me through uh, my website, multifamilyu.com. We do webinars, about 40 webinars a year, about 40,000 people in the community watch those webinars each year. Um, we, you know, and again, don't hesitate to throw a deal at me. I, I will respond, though my response might be fairly short. Um, but uh, keep looking. I, I, I fundamentally believe that the Fed's actions taken to combat COVID have extended the multifamily uh, you know, runway by an additional five, maybe even 10 years, I, I'd say five. So to me, I'm more bullish about the market in the, in the long run 
uh, I'm, I'm bearish about it over the next few months as we wait for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, Mac to, you know, basically get out of this, uh, this stuck position that they're in. Sooner or later, they have to do that because otherwise they have to lay off thousands of their employees, right? They still need to keep those people busy. So, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's keep working on multifamily projects. And if you have a development deal and you have experience, please come talk with us. Um, and uh, let's figure out how we can work together. MultifamilyU.com. Awesome. Great stuff. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Rob.